Well, I am emotional. I'm emotional after this season of television that I have watched. Yeah, man, it's really good shit. It's good shit. <laughs> yeah, I hope I don't cry in this episode. You're gonna cry. <laughs> I, hope, I hope I don't get food poisoning. <laughs> uh, you know, much like in the finale. Uh, this season was kind of that roller coaster. Even if you don't get food poisoning in this moment, can you still do the really good Foley work? From Funhouse, yeah. Great. Hey everyone, it's season two of the Sopranos podcast. This is our season two retrospective where we all just kind of uh, talk to you here about season two of the Sopranos. This is our chance to talk about season two in the totality. What worked, what didn't. We're going to go over some top three categories, favorite episodes, favorite moments, characters, all kinds of great stuff. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Lily D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we are so happy to be back to do this. These retrospectives, uh, even though we've only done one, retrospective was one of my favorite episodes last season. Last Because it gets us, gives us a chance to just kind of talk about everything and, and yeah. what it all means. Well, also, like, the vibe of the retrospective is also more casual, which is nice. Not that our, like, episodes to begin with are, like, overly formal, but, like, mm. I feel because we're kind of, like, breaking format and just kind of, like, hanging out, yeah. we get to just talk about the show in a new way. Because we're talking about a full season of television, and that's really different than analyzing and, and like, sometimes nitpicking every different part of an episode. Yeah, it's sort of a, what is this all about? Why are we here? What You know... Now that we have seen and broken down each episode as an individual chapter, what is the sum? What does it all add up to? And I think the answer here is an amazing, amazing season of television. They did it again. They managed to avoid a sophomore slump. I had a great time talking about it with all of you. Hopefully Jordan won't uh, won't cry today. He's our, our, our podcast crier. Yes, it seems to be every time we do the finale episode. Well, no, that's not true. It wasn't. It was... Down what? neck for season it was, one. Yeah, down neck season one. Yeah, I get very emotional. I... Uh, well, no, not today. I you think know I'm, what it I'm, is, though, Jordan? It's not that you're, you know, some kind of... I'm emotionally fortified yeah. today, you should yeah. know. Oh, really? Yes. We'll see about that. I think we'll make you cry. Don't make me cry, please. You know, Jordan, you listen, <laughs> he's a namby-pamby academic <laughs> yeah, type. You know, Jordan, he's one of these, He's one of these. you know, academic uh, namby-pamby kind of dandy guys, right? But I, this That's offensive. <laughs> a, a dandy? Wow. <laughs> Yeah, you know, he's a real Jack Dandy, I would say. If you're sort of yeah, he's a real snake in the mud. I'm not liking this line of However, I would argue that Jordan's emotionality in our podcast speaks to the fact that he is uh, more the, I don't want to say novice, because you're certainly no novice, you're a pro, but you you have the least exposure to the show that we have, so a lot of these are... Right, yeah, so I've said this on the show before, but for a lot of you, no, for all of you, for every episode, this is a, a revisitation. For me, this almost is like sometimes I feel like they're completely new, because it's been so long since I've seen them, or I don't remember. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that is true, I agree. And I will not take as much offense to being called a namby-pamby dandy... <laughs> Well, it's all out of love. I mean, I feel we all love each I think other. I feel love. We're like a family. Is this is. I hope you guys feel it out there. First of all, I do want to take a quick second before we break this down and just talk about all of you out there and what a pleasure it is to do this podcast. We weren't sure when we started how long it was going to last. We weren't sure what it was going to be, and we caught a following. And I want to thank all of you out there for the retweets and the comments and listening to our show. We have such a great time bringing this to you guys. And it's all just kind of like a big family here. We feel very embraced by the Sopranos community at large. And it's been a real pleasure to be able to sit down and, and 
talk about this great thing that we all love. That's really what it's all about. Yeah, uh, we weren't doing this for money or fame, but we well now we are rich and famous as a result yep. of this podcast. <laughs> we, should, we should acknowledge that, and we should thank uh, your role in that, listeners. So thank you so much. Yeah, we do we do quite well on this show. I, I'm stunned. This is one of the more successful things I've uh, ever put together, and I have David Chase and the Sopranos to thank for it, and all of you out there for listening. So, and my great friends here, you know. I hope you all feel like you're a part of this family, although, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to partake in our lovely Sunday dinner that we're cooking right now. Oof. It smells so good. What is on the menu for today? Today's menu is uh, we have a salad course. We have a pasta course. It's going to be kind of like a lemony uh, oil, spaghetti, mm. garlic gimmick there. Delish. And we have a garlic-crusted rack of lamb with a side of creamy lemon Broccoli Rob. It's that sounds dynamite. evil good. And then, of course, Lily Baker works in the food industry, my wife. She baked us a chocolate cannoli cream cake. Yeah. I did I did peek in the fridge. I've seen the cake. It's magnificent. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's Yay! a three-layer cake. It's really, really... It looks beautiful. It's very sexy cake. It has sex appeal. Oh, boy. Um, Paul brought us a delicious wine. What'd you bring us, Paul? Anything good? Uh, Montepulciano from the Abruzzo region, which is where my family's from. Oh. Thought you guys would appreciate it. Um, yes. Did you crush the grapes with your own bare feet? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) How you doing there, foodio? Uh, It's definitely a Casa Soprano kind of feel when, with the love and care that Chris and Lily put into some of these meals they prepare for us. Yeah. I hope you guys uh, listening feel the same way. We really appreciate it. I mean, I just hope that people enjoy half as much listening to this podcast as I do when I record it with you guys. Oh, thank you. It's so fun. And you know what? They're not a sponsor, but I actually want Jordan to talk real quick because when we have these dinners, Jordan brings pastry and cookies from a great place out in Long Island. And I, you know what? We have enough people listening to this, even in the, you know, in the state of New York and possibly some people in Long Island, that I, th- I, I, th- I want to give these folks a plug. Where do you get bringing us these amazing pastries? They make cookies, pies... I am happy to advertise for them. So this bakery is called Patsy's Bakery. Uh, Patsy's is a famous bakery in Lindenhurst that's on Long Island, New York. And it's it's been sort of the neighborhood Italian bakery for 70 years in that town. My grandparents went to the original incarnation of it. And it's still in the same spot on uh, Wellwood Avenue in Lindenhurst. And it's, it's just delicious. The food is so authentic and good and fresh. And um, The Sopranos has really been my way of reconnecting with my Italian-American heritage and dessert culture. Because mm. uh, I've kind of had an excuse to go back to the bakery. This was not something I was doing prior to recording this show. And being able to come into your home, Chris and Lily, and bring this stuff with me and eat a meal with you and share the pastries from my hometown has been awesome. Yeah, they make a great shuyatel, uh, just really great shit. Uh, the, you know, yeah, know, every the everything is great. Everything is great. That it's they all do. good. Yeah, it's all great. So, anyway, getting uh, onto the summer, we've talked enough about food that none of you are going to be able to enjoy with yeah. us. But check out that bakery <laughs> if you're nearby, and uh, you know, hey, maybe if you email me enough, I will send you like really appetizing pictures of the food that we're about to eat. So there you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about the Sopranos season two. What? Oh, 13 hours oh. of 13 hours of dramatic bliss. Uh, this is just such a great follow-up. What Not pressure they had. Nobody knew how big the show was going to be after season 1. I think they shot it and didn't quite know what they had. It right. was lightning in a bottle. So, in the world of entertainment, uh, when you have a second season that isn't good as the first, they refer to this as the 
uh, sophomore slump, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess that is what everyone is afraid of when they're working on a second season of television. And I think, I don't think anyone feels like this show suffers from that, right? No! No, not a little bit. Not even a little bit. There are many shows out there that people like. Uh, Daredevil, Stranger Things, we were talking about earlier that uh, Stranger Things great show great season three and one two a little bit of a slump but two season two are hard especially when you have something that really explodes in popularity quickly like the Sopranos did right. and like many shows sometimes do with their first season it's like whoa sure. now we have to come back with something yeah well there's a lot that contributes to a sophomore slump right you would think all the good ideas already went into season one uh you know a lot of ideas were already fully realized it's like what do we do you know, they try something that's too gimmicky, or they try to frankly just sort of repeat a season one. Oh formula. yeah, we see that a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. But I think Sopranos season two did such a lovely job of being familiar enough that you know what it is, and you kind of have a sense of the world and the characters. But it builds on season one. Would you agree, Paul? Absolutely. I also think that it deliberately makes these strange kind of lateral moves where sometimes it's actually slowing things down a bit and you're getting to really know the characters and some of their interrelationships before we get into the dynamism of who's working this angle or who's the antagonist on this story. And you can only do that if the writing and the performances are really good. And here they are. So even these episodes that slow down a bit, even a moment that's kind of representing the dullness in life Tony coming home and heating up some pasta is so interesting and well executed that it makes for again great television and this season is starting to build on this idea of anticlimax it's still very surprising and it gets harder to be surprising as the show goes forward but The Sopranos was always surprising and it always built on what had happened in the past with these characters and there's some new characters in this season it inject something into the new work and i'm just i never looked back honestly i love the first season and i love how the second season builds on it and uh creates its own identity do you have a preference season one to season two i'm i'm what wrestling fans would call a mark for nancy marchand and and her work as livia which is still here in this season there's great moments but she was so much of course more important in the first season so I might tip the hat to the first season on that level, but also I'm sure today we're all going to talk about some new characters in this season that add something to it. So it's a tough call, might it's a tough give, call. give it to one in overtime or something, but I guess it, it also, to me, even if there's a preference, it's all building and it's pushing me forward and the, the, this is the attitude I take into watching mm-hmm. The Sopranos as it goes on. Yeah, I'm used to sort of conflict-based analysis when I'm looking at television, when I'm looking at, frankly, anything. So I think I often look at things through, like, the eyes of, like, the antagonist or the villain in a season. I did find Livia and Junior to be more compelling in season one. That's not to say Richie and Janice are bad at all in season two. On the contrary, they're extraordinary. Uh, I just, I enjoyed the intimacy of the conflict in the first season. I mean, your own mother and your own uncle is really hard to beat, even when you come in with, you know, your own sister. Uh, but that's not to say I think season two is diminished at all. I just personally like Livia and Junior and them having a larger role meant more to me as well. However, I do want to say I think season two, maybe because of Richie and Janice, or maybe just because of the tonality of the entire season in, in, in all, it is a weirder, kind of more dangerous, less predictable show in season two, and that's super sexy and exciting. Absolutely. Agreed. 
I don't know that I prefer one over the other as a whole. I think if I were picking out my favorite episodes, if I made a list of top 10 episodes from one and two, I think you'd see more from season two than mm -hmm. season one. Yeah. But I don't disagree necessarily about Junior and Livia. So for mm -hmm. me, it's a wash. It's all good. Forget yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. We're talking about a difference. Uh, I mean, these seasons are so close to perfect. Nothing is without any flaw. But these seasons are as close to perfect for a television season as you're going to get. And so we're talking a difference between like, it's not one and two. It's one A and one B. It's really just like, which one is just slightly does it for you. I think with a gun pressed to my temple I, and I had to watch one more for the rest of my life, it would be one. I think as one as a whole for many different reasons just does it for me a little bit more. But to go off of what Lily was saying, that there might be more individual episodes, I think that like maybe it's the writer's room finally kind of gelling together or the show hitting a, a stride or a certain sense of rhythm and uh, power. That there are more, I think the highs are higher in two for me, you know, yeah. but, but. Well, season two doesn't have the, from a writing perspective, season two doesn't have the pressure of exposition or yeah. as much exposition. We meet a few new characters, sure, but season one is really setting the tone for everything. So it has more responsibility to lay that foundation. Whereas season two can just run with that foundation, which is why, even though, again, I might prefer more episodes from season two it's nothing without the foundation from season one that they laid so perfectly mm. which is why in the same conversation of like best show of all time for me it always ends up coming back to sopranos because you know mad men breaking bad these shows can't exist without the sopranos yeah season two also just deals with a lot more complicated ideas sure um that's not to say season one doesn't but in season two because the story insists on going on as life always goes on you have to kind of follow these threads along the path and the paths get weird it's yeah. like okay great we've dealt with livia by you know exiling her from the family but she still exists right junior is removed from power tony still has to deal with him all the time right it, so n they've gotten rid of nothing from season one like it's very much carrying on uh there was no clean slate wipe and that's really good Yes. Imagine watching season two, like, in 2000 when it aired. Like, you're watching it week to week before all the digital direct TV stuff. God. And you're anticipating. And, like, say that, that last week you watched Night in White Satin Armor where Janice just blew Richie away. And what you're geared up for is a big finale, probably with a great deal of tension and tense meetings and maybe, like, several gunfights or something. And then in the last episode of this season, Tony farts and shits his way through <laughs> half the episode, and he's, like, immobile. That's not what you expected. So these paths get really weird. They're unpredictable. It's one of the great things about the show. I'm not going to out this person, but I think he speaks for a certain segment of the fan base. So I wanted to bring this up. I want to mention, before I even say it, I disagree. But I want to get the analysis of the group here. I had someone say to me that it feels when The Soprano, and this is... Again, we're going to honor our no-spoilers policy, but this is not necessarily the last time that Sopranos is going to spend a significant amount of time in a dream. That it felt to some fans like having a, a dream take up half an episode, almost like a cop-out or a time waste. Are these people valid at all? Is this, a, is this a legitimate complaint, or how do we feel about that? No. Yeah, legitimately, no. Yeah. 
No, I, I don't think that's a valid complaint. Yeah, I mean, I guess I get what they're saying, but I, I mean, I was, I couldn't look away. I, yeah, well, I think yeah. if you didn't enjoy it or you couldn't get anything from it, I think you might be watching the show for the wrong reason. Yeah. Well, um, it, here's the thing. It, it's one thing to say if a show were to take a dream and it felt like it was just filling time to the end, you know, like just stretching it out so you hit a run time. But in, a, in particular in Funhouse, a narrative is being drawn out of it, number one. And number two, there is meaning to everything going on. It's not just that it's happening. Right? It's not like, oh, we're just gonna be a weird, artsy, edgy show. It's not David Chase it's not David Chase's style. It's there's a story being told even though it's a dream. And you're really getting a sense of where the characters are, where they're going, what's driving them, and there there's purpose to it. It's not just you know and and on top of that, they happen to be artfully done and the best representation we talked about this in our funhouse episode. It happens to be some of the best representation on screen of dreaming that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Someone's one person one second, then they're something else the next, and the camera's kind of disoriented and weird, and we're getting the same thing from different angles, and it looks different. But I tend to agree with this, these folks here. I just know that there are a certain amount of fans out there, a certain small percent of Sopranos fans, who resent some of the dreams. So it, I think it bears a discussion, even though none of us here agree with that point of view. Sure. It's not a dream ballet where I got Sid Charisse on my <laughs> cast list and I have to show her off, right? <laughs> like, that happens, right? That's not what this is. I find that the people, and I don't actually know who you're talking about, but I find that the people who feel that way aren't comfortable with ambiguity. Mm. They need to understand everything to feel valid in what they're thinking and what they've seen. And so something like Funhouse won't make them comfortable, therefore it's not valid or good. Yeah. We also have to acknowledge that you know therapy and psychoanalysis is in the anatomy of The Sopranos, and dream interpretation is a huge part of that. So centering your finale episode in a dream in which much happens that is very significant and very weighty and the stakes are very high is appropriate and should be received appropriately. Very recently, I had a nightmare that was more vivid, believable, and I recalled it a lot more vividly than I normally do. I woke up and I remembered every detail of this thing. And normally I forget or just have vague flashes or imagery of, or feelings. But I remembered event for event what happened in this dream. And it was really harrowing and disturbing. And that was like two a, a therapy session and a half of breaking that down and what, what it meant for me and why that was elicited. So mm-hmm. in a show about a mob guy, at its core, it's still a show about a mob guy seeing a therapist. And what kind of conditions would cause someone like this to be in therapy and what happens when they're in therapy and how it affects him and the therapist. We're going to talk about that. But, it, yeah, I agree. Like, to your, to your point, Jordan, it is very much about therapy and the psychoanalysis. So you have to be willing to go to some weird, dark places with the person whose mind we're exploring. Yeah, I like to think Tony only really figures out what's going on with Pussy because he's learned maybe in some way to listen to himself. Maybe this is one of our early examples of how therapy has improved him in some way, you know, Mm. given him a more keen mind to figure out what's going on in his dream and take that as truth into the living world. Actually, a key theme of this whole season is denial. They say it outright a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So that, along with the therapeutic notion, of course, 
means that the dream format is also earned. It doesn't come out of nowhere. When Pussy confronts Tony as a fish, he's working around that denial system. There's a reason for this. The storytelling is too meticulous for them to be frivolous in formatting it this way. So, I mean, it's always worked for me. And when you bring up that denial, as well as another key word in this season is absurdity. Yeah, we, t- we, we talked about absurdity a lot. So there's, there's, as always with The Sopranos, I think there's a reason for all this. You know what else there's a reason for? Our next and first top three. Top three! Hey, hey it's top three! We had, that's, a, that's our first rendition of our top three song for season two. Yes, we'll have many more of Very bizarre and awkward. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to call an audible here. We were going to start with a different category, but I got myself so hungry Ooh. talking about our Sunday dinner. I think I want to start with uh, uh, our, our top three favorite food moments okay. of Soprano season two. Let's clarify this category for the listener. Food moments don't just have to be a dish that is served, right? Right. No, it doesn't have to be like, oh, that... That uh, that crown roast looked yummy. That's not what we're talking about. It's, right. it's more like a moment that either had food involved or yeah. featured food or centered around food uh, or a particularly potent dinner scene. As we'll, we'll elicit what we mean when we go through these right. moments. Well, there are no good dinner scenes in this season. Still <laughs> <laughs> <Some> Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, let's go through these. I think the way I want to do this this time as opposed to the first time is I think we're each going to go around and we're each going to give our full top three. Sure. And then we'll get into the discussion because, you know, some people might have crossover moments here. And so let's each break down our top three. Would anyone like to start with food? Jordan, start us off. Top three food moments. Sure. Uh, So I'll go three, two, one. I've decided to order these, right? My number three moment comes from uh, season two, episode four, Commendatory. Uh, This is Polly's request for macaroni and gravy. Uh, because he cannot handle the finer cuisine of actual Italy, and he just longs for the simple food of home. Uh, my number two uh, would be a Coke and a Slice, Ooh. right? Uh, as requested by Christopher, and then also by uh, by uh, Amy and uh, and John Favreau uh, in, in D-Girl, season two, episode seven. And then, of course, my much-lauded tripe and tomatoes that comes from Full Leather Jacket, season two, episode eight. I'm going to go next because you and I have a lot of crossover. Sure. So I'm excited to talk about this. In fact, we have the same three and the wow. same one. My number three moment wow. is Paulie in Italy. Yeah. With the, you know, he wants macaroni and gravy. He's looking at the squid or seaweed or whatever the <laughs> fuck that is. And he's got, like he's kind of grossed out. It's not what he envisioned when he imagined going back to the, yeah. the mother country. Uh, now, my number two food moment comes from the episode <laughs> The Happy Wanderer, where Matt Bevilacqua is instructed to sweep some cheese underneath Silvio. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which launches one of the funniest rants in this whole show. Uh, he calls, and I believe he even refers to him after, you know, after he does the whole rant, I stick motherfucking provolone in my socks at night so they smell like your sister's crotch in the morning. And then he shoves the food off the here. Here, have a good time. And then as he's, <laughs> Matt Bevilacqua's been thoroughly humiliated and berated, and Tony's laughing in the corner, Matt has to come back, uh, uh, Silvio feels, ends the scene by calling out, hey, cheese fuck, get me some food. 
So if that's, <laughs> not, if that's not a top three food moment, I don't know what is. And then my number one is also tripe and tomatoes, which I have a feeling we're going to talk go. in depth about in a moment. Yeah. My food moments, honorable mention, goes to tripe and tomatoes. Got it. Got to do it. full other Got to do it. Number three, commendatore. Polly asks for macaroni and gravy. Holy there shit, we all the same number three. And the Italian <laughs> guys call them a worse classless piece of shit than the Germans. <laughs> Which has got to be an insult. I think the Italians got some beef going back with the Germans. Here's where it gets fun. Number two, full leather jacket. Carmela brings the lawyer ricotta pie. Mm. Ooh, That's right. the beautiful ricotta pie. pie. Yes. What threatened? I brought you a ricotta pie. And is a better gangster in the offering of food than most gangsters are. Mm-hmm. Number one, Funhouse already comes over and talks about ghee. <laughs> and says you get a rancid hit of that and just that whole sequence where he's I guess trying to help but Tony is in just this mortal misery yeah, yeah, yeah. and at one point when he's on the phone with Pussy you hear Tony mumble from the bed stop talking about food <laughs> that whole moment just slays me so that's my number one yeah that's so great Artie's like well, not like you know from bad shellfish or anything right? you know, just, Artie's just like trying to deflect the Chris what the fuck his... am I gonna get sick now too <laughs> no, no. He's, yeah he's not He's not trying to help in that scene. He's trying to cover his ass. Yeah, he's being a It's yeah. so good. Uh, I'm sorry, but uh, I feel vindicated. <laughs> Paul, before we talk about tripe and tomatoes, because it's on all, we all three of us mentioned it. I want to give you a big, I didn't, I forgot, not that I forgot, like obviously it's a moment I remember, but when I was going through food moments, regal pie slipped my, slipped my gaze. That's a great moment. It's, it's really a highlight Carmela moment for this season. That scene where she just lays it on to, to what is it? Jane Cusimano? Right? Yeah, it's Jeannie, Jeannie. Jeannie and what's her sister? Jeannie. Jeannie. Her Jeannie. name wouldn't be yeah. Cusimano, so, but yeah. But uh, yeah, exactly. Woof. Yeah. Good stuff. Good good call. But yeah, let's talk about this moment. It was Jordan and I's number one, and you honorably mentioned tripe and tomatoes. Why did this stick out for us? So first, it's 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 notable for the dish itself. Yeah, tripe it's, and tomatoes it, is unusual, yeah. and I would say unappealing. Uh-huh. Right, Richie seems to think the family and maybe I think Carmela mentions though the kids will love it, which is a lie. <laughs> right, no one loves tripe and tomatoes. But I, you know, we mentioned in our episode that covered full leather jacket. Um, you know, it's not a veal parmesan. It's not a ziti. It's not like a an every man's dish. Right, tripe and tomatoes is specific. Richie acknowledges that. He says when he's offering it to her that she would be one to appreciate this. He's also trying to be good. Um, you know, he's he's trying to get in their good graces. He's just been over their house for dinner, really, for the first time. The Tripe and Tomatoes is a thank you for that. This is the same episode he's, of course, given uh, Tony Rocco de Mayo's, you know, leather jacket. This is the scene where he sees the jacket on the uh, the housemaid's husband is, is wearing this jacket that he gave to Tony as a gift. And the Tripe and Tomatoes is just, it's especially notable, not for anyone eating the dish, or even for its presence, but it's for that moment of humbled humanity from Richie where he was probably excited to like offer this and have a little conversation, cup of coffee, whatever, and that spoken just under the microphone level of, I've got to go. Mm-hmm. Right. He can't even speak. He's mm-hmm. so ashamed uh, to have had his gifts pat back at him like this. Yeah. So the tripe and tomatoes are left, and the full leather jacket has been seen, and he's out the door. It That's also cool. makes for two well-meaning but bad gifts yes. right <laughs> this ugly jacket plus tripe and tomatoes thanks pal and yeah. gifts give, give, and we talked about this in our episode gifts and offerings were a big thing in that particular episode yeah. and uh, of course richie bring brings these because uh, richie himself is sort of an 
unwanted gift from the, the penal system. So well said. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? Here you go, Tony. Here's this guy who's going to fuck everything up for everybody in a moment of relative peace considering yeah. the war you went through last I year. I think quite possibly the tripe and tomatoes might go uneaten as well, just so the jacket has gone unworn. Mmm. I like that. So, yeah, very good, guys. I like that a lot. And just in general, I don't really know many people who like tripe. People barely know what tripe is. Richie himself says we're still the only people around who like the tripe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. Cool. Very good food moments. I do like... Uh, I consider this an honorable mention because there's not really, like, a big dramatic moment around it, but I do like uh, early on in season two when Richie's over for dinner and Carmela pulls a crown roast out of the oven... And Tony says, hey, I want him where I can see him. Then stabs, <laughs> stabs the crown roast. roast, and Carmela says that. So we mean when we say family. It's a great commercial sound bite, you know. It's like, yeah. this yeah. Is, you know, you can see them putting that in the advert for season two. But well done, guys. That was our first top three, and uh, great some great moments there. I want to shift the conversation a little bit back to some broader thematic elements. I view each season of The Sopranos... And this idea will become more clear because I think it continues through the remaining seasons in a diff- in different ways. Putting Tony, our main character, our protagonist, into a different role with his antagonists, and in season one, he his antag- he, he serves as a son to his antagonists, a surrogate son to Junior and an actual son to Livia. To me, season two puts Tony at odds in a brother role. Jackie was like a brother to Tony, and he's dealing with Jackie's brother, Richie. Tony's adversary in Janice, he's that, he's his brother. They say to pussy before they kill him, you're like a brother to us, to all of us. And Even Davies Catino to an extent. Davies Catino to an extent, yes. So season two casts Tony as brother. So let's talk a little bit about that, his relationship with Janice, who we meet for the first time. We also meet Barbara for the first time in season two, his other sister, and how Tony as brother kind of carried him through his journey in season two. Let's start with this. What do we think of Janice? Yuck. (laughs) She comes in, what a transformation. We talked, it's really like, she comes in off the bat. (laughs) Yuck. That's great. <laughs> that is how anybody who looks at the show that you know it's like everybody remembers Janice that way. It's very funny. Um, but she is one of the. Le- this is not Ida Totoro, by the way. This is this the character is this way. But we meet this hippy dippy Janice. She's going by Parvati. Parvati yeah. from Seattle, and she's eating miso soup, and she has the fucking ergonomic pillow, and she's collecting disability and the carpal tunnel, and by the end of the season, she's a totally different woman. She's the doing the Jersey housewife thing. She's going to golf outings. She's Janice again. Yeah. What always strikes me about Janice is that all her scheming is very transparent. It oh, seems like yes. everyone sees through it right away all the time. Like... When Tony finds the real estate sign in the backseat of her car, yeah. he knows why it's there. Yeah. When she goes to see Livia for the first time, Livia knows right away why Janice is back. You're here for my house. You want my house. And then when this all shifts to her kind of teaming up with Richie and trying to maneuver him into, like, a head of the family position, he sees through that as well. But yet, somehow, despite being totally transparent in her scheming, she's actually still very effective. Oh, yeah. So she's actually still quite good at manipulation, a trick I'm sure she's learned from Livia. And she's a formidable match for Tony because these two can come at each other in a much more honest 
an adversarial way than uh, they can perhaps be with other people. Tommy has to hide what he really feels about other people, and he has to say things certain ways to certain people. He's less guarded with Janice, I think, uh, and that comes from being raised alongside her. But when these two really fight, it 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 comes right to the honesty. When Tony has complaints about Janice, it's very direct. He always means what he says. And they actually seem to have a mutual honesty with each other that I actually think is refreshing in yeah. this show where you have to prevaricate a lot. They don't mince words when they really no, have to. not at uh, all. Which is, is refreshing in a show where there's so much lying going on. And there's a lot going on here. First of all... I, the chemistry between Gandolfini and Aiden Satoro is great. And they had worked with each other previously. Yeah, I believe they yeah. did a, a production of Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway. Yeah, awesome. Which I can just imagine. I think that was in the 90s they did that. Okay. Whew. Uh, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. But uh, yeah, so they had a great chemistry. And there's, there's definitely like... Tony bears a resentment to Janice. Because... She ran off and left him with Livia, and she flew off to the West Coast. He doesn't have the same thing for Barb. I think maybe that's because Tony's older than Barb. But Barb escaped all this relatively unscathed. Barb no, strikes me as the person who never engaged yeah. with the life, and there, and also she's the baby, right? She seems Davis. like the kind of person who's like when the whole family's fighting, she probably just rolled her eyes and walked in the other room. Correct. You know what I mean? She. <laughs> yeah, I have also considered that perhaps Janice and Tony protected her a bit. Mm. They're quite a bit older than she is. Yeah. And they already had Livia figured out to some extent and were able to probably, as an older sibling would, be like, listen, watch out for mom. She's just not a well person. Get out while you can. And Tony, to his credit, has taken the brunt of it for years. Right. It's just interesting to me because he does have that protective vibe with Barbara, but with Janice, he, you know, I, I think he he has a lot of resentment on her for leaving him in that situation because Janice knows how much of a nightmare Livia is. Maybe Barb doesn't. Sure, she, well, she doesn't I mean, know. We know in Funhouse when she's there to help work out Livia's living situation after Janice goes back to Seattle. She's like, I have no idea. She, she, she makes some kind of illusion. I have no idea what happened with you guys. But uh, so she is kept out of the loop and she stays out of the loop deliberately. I'm led to believe she lives like far enough away that it's she's not involved. Barbara? In any, yeah. She lives in Brewster. Yeah. Yeah. Brewster. So there you go. Yeah. So that but, can be a million miles if you want it to be. Right. Right. And I think that's the point. Yeah. Um, well, she let herself be absorbed by her husband's family. She doesn't want anything to do with her own. That happens all the time. Tony's relationship with Janice in particular, I think, points to something interesting, which is that Tony, I do think, views being a brother and being a brother mobster as similar in some way to how he treated his mother in the first season, Mm. which is that his personal feelings he often didn't consider too important. I think he saw a duty and a responsibility. So Janice annoys him from the get-go, but he invites her to share his home. Because that's what you do. Yeah. And that characterizes a lot of these relationships, I think. Which is important because it will build up, I think, in part, the denial system that leads Tony to the end of the season. And with Janice, I I absolutely agree. I think it's such a great point that they have a frankness with each other. And there's even a transparency to Janice's machinations. And then I guess absurdly and interestingly... Importantly, people miss things <laughs> about it at critical moments. It doesn't seem Uncle Junior does, yeah. by the way. Uh, but Richie no, certainly does. He clocked does. her right away. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I'm recalling a great 
conversation we had in one of our episodes, and I think uh, we nailed like we hit the nail. This to me hits the nail on the head with why Janice elicits such an ugh. It's not just that she's annoying and domineering and manipulative. It's also that we talked at length when we first like how out of place she felt in the first part of the season, especially because she came in. She's bringing in all this, as Tony would say, Buddhist shit. So. If she was genuinely that way, it wouldn't be so annoying. But it's annoying because it's so obviously phony baloney. Like, that's not who she is. She's putting up a front to get something. She's right. put, You know, and that's what she does. When she, she, she fits the role she needs to. If she's this lovey, hippy-dippy from Seattle, I'm just back to help mom. I, you know, whatever. And then she gets back, to whatever she's looking for, the house, or as Tony called it, the lost Dutchman's gold mine uh, in the basement. Or she thinks Livia has some money stashed away. But then when she needs to leech off of Richie to get what she wants, she transforms. She's no longer right. Parvati strips away. She's That's wearing it. the sweaters and, the, you know, she's just looking like Carmella, <laughs> you know, yeah. who she criticizes openly in the early part of the season for a relationship to Tony. And Carmella calls her right out on that. You fanning the frames with Richie April of all people. Yeah. I mean, a holier-than-thou attitude can be annoying even if it's genuine. Yeah. With Janice, every layer is shit. Yeah. It's just her <laughs> self-service. That's it. You're yeah. Right. Well, Livia has her number right away. Their first scene together in Livia's hospital room, Livia tells her, you ran away because you hate yourself. Right? That's Janice's whole thing. She's going to put so many layers between her and her authentic self that she'll mm-hmm. never really get there. Yeah. Right? I, I don't know. Maybe we see it for a second at the bus station right at the end of the season <laughs> with all her artifice stripped away. But otherwise, Janice is always just pretending. And Tony sees it and we see it. Yeah. It's such a strange dynamic, this family, and this is what makes it such compelling drama, that they all, in a way, would be like, because of the mob life and because this is a life and you hear actual people involved in the mob talk about this, how one day someone just disappears. They're gone. You know what I mean? They get killed. They disappear. They never, they stop showing up to dinner. And that's, maybe they lamb it. Maybe they're dead. It's a big if, as Pussy says in season one, episode one. Maybe he'll turn up. If. If is the being the key word. So there's a lot of if and what ifs and who, where did this person go? So it's odd to me that so many of these characters, Junior, Livia, Tony, Janice, seem like they need each other so crucially. Like Janice needed Tony to come through in night and white satin armor and help her. But at the same time, like she was plotting the whole season to kill Tony. You know, she was basically all but all but explicitly urging Richie to that conclusion. Yeah. So it's like these characters are fine with killing each other or the other people dying until it becomes an imposition on a greater need for them. Right. These are not either-or relationships. These yeah. are all both relationships, right? We yeah. asked, uh, you know, previously, you know, when, when Junior reveals to Tony in Night and White Satin yes. Armor the plot to have him killed, we had asked, like, hey, would Junior be okay if Tony was killed anyway? Yeah, like, yeah. What, what is his feeling on this? Like, the answer is both. It's yeah. that he loves Tony, and that's his nephew, and it's one of the closest to people him in his life, but if it would preserve his dignity and his survival, he would also be okay if he died. And we just have to accept the complicated nature of these emotions that, for these people, it's all both. Yeah. Well, I say this in the presence of my friends that I feel a lot for and that I trust, and that I would trust in an hour of dark need. What could be worse, I guess other than your own mother betraying you, than your best friend? Mm. Right? And so, as Jordan said, not an either-or, it's both. And it leads up to 
a penultimate episode with two characters that fundamentally kind of annoy Tony, essentially dispensing with each other. Like, Janice takes care of Richie and then she's got to get out of the state of New Jersey. But in some way, the much more painful reveal mm. is that the guy who's not your blood relative, but the guy that you've been with for 30 years, that you trusted with everything, is a traitor. Yeah. That is, I think, the journey that Tony goes on as a brother. And finally, having to confront that betrayal once again, and here in even more direct fashion. He puts a bullet in Big Pussy, yeah. several, and then they dump him in the ocean. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the tragedy of Big Pussy bumping Sarah this season. I mean, the season starts and ends with it. It's it's really kind of the 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 spine, I think, of, of season two. Is this sense of is this uh, the situation with Pussy? It's the only dangling thread from season one. Right. Uh, he vanishes after nobody episode. Nobody knows anything, and it's kind of like everything gets resolved in the finale to a satisfying end. Where's Pussy? And then he shows up right after the montage in season two, that moment where he steps out of the car and he goes up to Tony's house. And even in that first episode, we get that weird slow-mo shot of Tony staring over the grill at Pussy and they're just kind of locking eyes and he knows something's different about his friend. Yeah, it's really well written. The, the whole season arc with Pussy is well written. Um, it feels off the whole time. I mean, when Tony accepts him back in the basement of his house, you, the viewer, have got to be like, don't do that. Mm. You know, I mean, of course, we know the truth, but also it's like, really, Tony? I, you know, how much are your blinders on and how much are you still checking? You know, um, it, it's um, it's hard to watch the characters go through this. Right. This whole relationship and, and how it changes. And Skip says something very saddening in retro. It makes the whole thing, well, yeah, I know Skip is probably our most hated new character in in a season with Janice and Richie April. That's saying a lot. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> I mean, he's not Co- Coach Hauser, but he's bad. <laughs> you were spotted, Sal. Yeah, exactly. That's dead on. <laughs> so don't go pull my taffy. Um, <laughs> love me some Skip. I'm not making fun of the list, but th- that character just sucks. In a, not in a bad way, but like, he sucks. I hate him. The actor does a great job yes. of creating a terribly unlikable character. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. But... He says to Pussy at one point, you've been on our tit since 98, which means that, because you watch season one and you love Pussy. I mean, he's yeah. he's a mentor to Chris. He's kind of, he's referred to as like a stone gangster. He's like kind of a prime example of what Tony looks for in a friend and someone who works for him. Loyalty, stalwart. He defends him to a ridiculous point in Nobody Knows Anything when Vin McKazian says your friend Pussy's wired for sound. And Tony is just... Denial, denial, denial. I want you to see the wire. He takes more care to make sure Pussy's not a rat. In the mob life, if you even mob life, if you even suspect somebody's got a wire on, that's it. You don't even need to investigate. It's like that's that's all we need. You catch wind somebody's wearing a wire, it's over. But Tony is close with Pussy. Pussy's different. The he he is the embodiment of the modern gangster and a brother to Tony. Tony loves him, and we love him, and we think maybe there's a chance, well, oh, it got crossed up, Jimmy was the wire. I think they were both the rat. They were both snitching. That's the reality of it. And we, as much as we look back fondly on some of our season one pussy moments, it's, it's in a good way, tainted by what happens this season. It's a tragedy. It's a tragic story. It's a fall. And there is such dishonor, like, you know, like, Tony gives us a, a good example of what you're supposed to do in this situation when you think you're you're about to go away. You do the time. You make the preparations for everyone to know that you're going away. You you give, you know, Melvoin 
I'm sorry, you give Mink, uh, you know, 400 grand, and uh, you, uh, you know, you, you prepare to go away for a long time. Plus, you could not do the time. Busted for heroin, and he's going to turn stateside. It's terrible. Yeah. I think the last thing he says in the show is, I feel like I can't stand. Not a stand-up guy. Yeah. yeah. So, and they take him out, and they put him in the ocean. He looks like a fucking turd. Yeah. Which Tony has been shitting out all night. He's the cancer that needs to be removed. Tony says himself in From Where to Eternity, uh, confronted with the question of hell in therapy, we're soldiers, we follow codes, and that code is what they had to follow. doesn't matter that you loved this guy. Yeah. And all three of those characters, you can see how it affected them all, and it will stay with them going forward. Yeah. Sylvia couldn't actually even stand to, you know, stand down there in the, yeah. in the hull of the ship. He had to go back out, you know, as the... You don't see that a lot on The Sopranos. Tony yelling at Silvio. Yeah, almost never happens. Yeah. Well, Silvio's, you know, again, he's supposed to be the stalwart of stability and loyalty, and Tony yelling at him, because none of them know what to do in that scene. There's so many heartbreaking moments in that last scene on the boat with Pussy. Uh, none more to me, perhaps, oddly, ironically enough, more so than their anger, them grilling him, him trying to give some kind of pathetic excuse, Tony yelling at Sil... Not in the face, okay. You know, he's starting to lose it. I don't know if I can stand. But to me, the most heartbreaking moment is when they're all having that shot of tequila. And they're having, like, a last laugh with him. And, like, uh, this is sort of like the pussy we remember. And then there's that kind of realization, like, was it ever real, you know? Yeah. Ugh, gets me right here even thinking about it. See, I'm the first one to start welling up this How does Tony, after that, (laughs) trust anybody? Yeah. Yeah. And what a brutal betrayal, part two. And that's part of what makes that last therapy scene so dark. Because he's flippant and dismissive. He's singing Maybe Baby. He's rocking his feet around. He's fidgeting. And Melfi's trying to get to the bottom of it. And he has just been so badly fucked two years in a row by these deep, cutting betrayals. He doesn't even want to begin to face what it all could mean for him. And what he does and how he, how he puts meat on the table. But, that's The Sopranos, baby. That's The Sopranos. In the meantime, let's say we get to a little more top three. Top three. Jeffrey Bezos. Jeffrey right. Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's funny. All right, I think I want to talk about our favorite music cues from season two. Okay. All right. Paul, you want to take this one first? Jordan sure. started last time. All right. Honorable mention in Guy Walks Into His Psychiatrist's Office opening montage with Frank Sinatra singing A Very Good Year. Mm-hmm. Can't pass that up. All right. Number three. House Arrest. You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory by Johnny Thunder. Plays at the end with a great crane shot over mm-hmm. Satrials into uh, the credits. It's just a great moment in the show perfectly underlined I think by that music there's a nostalgia to it also a melancholy when we took it apart it was very much about like the boredom and the regularness and waiting for something to happen and it caps off a very powerful episode about boredom and I guess depression and ennui so it's I love that musical choice great number two is Goodnight My Love from Do Not Resuscitate um, at the end of that episode where Tony carries Jr. I think a lot of this season is a love story with Tony and Junior. Mm. And actually, they're coming back together. Also, not for nothing, but that song is a team-up by Ella Fitzgerald and Benny Goodman, 
white artist and a black artist, they got together and they made Good Night, My Love. In that episode, Tony gets together with a black preacher and they rob pensioners. <laughs> so, kind of dark. Yeah. Um, great, great uh, song track to end that episode. Number one, From Where to Eternity, every use of My Lover's Prayer. We have the same number one, Paul, Lover's Prayer. That's, you know, that took it for me. My number three is uh, Conte Patiro in Commendatore, not just because it was a pretty song that was very popular at the time. Andrea Bocelli's a great singer, but because it served an actual utilitarian purpose in the episode to evoke a very specific feeling, conversation, and moments that happened earlier and kind of stringing them through to a gut punch end. So that one sticks out for me. I always think of that song when I think of this season, so I had to, I had to mention it. It's used in couple other spots it's just all over the season I, I, and i remember it in around this time it was all over the radio too so good use of that song my number two cue is uh i saved the world today by the eurythmics at the end of night in white satin armor there's sure. just we talked at length about it in the episode i don't have much more to add to it other than what we said but it's simultaneously euphoric yeah but also dreadful yeah <laughs> and just just the there's feel, a melancholy you know, to it. Yeah, so, there's yeah. sort of, a, a again, those sock-in-the-gut endings that only Sopranos can do. And yes, Lover's Prayer from Where to Eternity. It's just used masterfully through that episode. It drives the scenes together. It ties the whole thing up. They, I love that they pair different verses for different moments. And it, it opens, it moves it, and then it closes that shot of the angels, Lover's Prayer. Can't not think of the how well-integrated and well used that song was in that episode. I can't think of that episode without that song going through my head. Yeah. Uh, repeating one of Paul's, well, at least his honorable mention, for the uh, uh, season two opening montage from Guy Walks Into a Psychiatrist's Office, Frank Sinatra's It Was a Very Good Year. Yes. With, with, with just a, a great montage that answers all the burning questions you have. Like, well, what time has passed? What have people been up to? Oh, same old, same old for the most part. <laughs> but really sets up our, our, our season in a really cool way also tonally a really cool way because mm. it's like oh this is all right the family in peacetime and this is where our, our old enemies are and, and what's going on oh the the fair is still going on it, it's it's there's some good stuff there boston's more than a feeling is playing at the garbage men's ball in in <laughs> yes. uh, in house arrest uh and tony actually uh i believe passes out right on the i closed my eyes and i slipped away line in that song which I thought was quite fun and then of course my favorite uh, musical moment we talked about this a little bit in our episode but um, Wheel in the Sky mm. plays in Bust Out uh, to um, you know great effect and uh, I think Journey is an important band in Soprano Land uh, and Wheel in the Sky has important lyrics for the themes in this show yeah um, so I think it works well for us Episodes about cycles and hypocrisy, and, yeah. and you know, it's 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 that's a big one, and, and it all keeps turning. That's also a great song. I mean, it is. We've great been song. singing oh, it, gorgeous. you know, out loud. Yeah, big earworm today. You know, yeah, earworm. I've never heard that expression. I like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, these are great songs, guys. Uh, the opening montage. I didn't mention it as one of my three, but that is uh, that's a great way to open the season. They do a great job of pairing image with what you're hearing too. It's like it's it's all great, you know. Well, and Frank Sinatra is so intrinsic in the New Jersey Italian yes. experience that it really brings you immediately back to where 
I'm back in Soprano land. Here we go. Mm. You know, it's a great opener. Yeah. Yeah. Meadow learning how to drive. And I, I love the repeated imagery of Carmela just serving a different dish, looking more and more disappointed and, and dissatisfied with her life each time we see her. Yeah. Uh, she's like smiling. Here's Sunday dinner. Then it's like, oh, I'm kind of bored. Then it's like, I want to die. <laughs> then it's, she smells Tony's, like Tony's putting his shirt in the laundry and uh, he smells it. And, uh, the music takes on that kind of when it's going into the bridge, and now I think, blink, blink of my life, do, 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 as vintage wine. And it's got that kind of playful, mysterious quality to it. Yeah. And Tony and Carmel are staring at each other in the bed. What a moment that is when she turns away. And she just, yeah. oh, oh, you know. Great. That will lead us into all the business. The fact that I'm able to. this season, you know. Yeah, the fact that I'm able to describe it so vividly <laughs> just off of. What it is speaks to its quality. It's good stuff. Yeah. When you guys mentioned all these moments, they were immediately vivid to me yeah. because the use of music is effective because the uh, the scene at the garbageman's ball yeah. is very well done. It, it uh, mirrors Tony's disorientation. They're all very well done. Yeah. Yeah. There are two shots of Olivia in that opening montage as well. They're just so good because the first shot we get of her, she's just kind of like sitting up in her hospital bed, and the expression on Nancy Marchand's face is actually kind of one of like quiet regret and contemplation you know she's she's um she's thinking about something there right this is not a doddering old woman mm. in any way she's not diminished she's just sitting thinking what's next you know and in the next scene i think we get with her she's like they're working on her leg yeah, it's like yeah. a little therapy business but like it's uh it's it's just a really good montage it's a very thoughtful montage all right, great job, guys. It's another top three. Uh, Lily's going to be chiming in on some of these top threes later on. Uh, she didn't get involved in every category, but uh, that's all what right. What are you going to do about it? I'm not going to do a thing. I'm going to serve you a delicious dinner after this. Oh, sounds ooh. good. Hey. <laughs> delicious. Let's talk a little bit about family. It's a big word in this show. It's a big word in this world. And when I say family, I mean both. We can start with the domestic and then go out into the capital F family. But uh, let's talk about the kids, especially because the last episode is centered around a graduation, and they each had, Meadow and AJ both had their very shining moments this season. Then let's shift into a conversation about uh, what's going on in the mob world of New Jersey, other than the pussy thing that we, we talked about already. But, you know, there's a lot of new developments there. Furio coming over. I want to talk about Furio. What happened to Chris and those two douchebags that were working for him and mm -hmm. all the kind of developments and the shifting going on in the in the mob family. So let's start with the kids. I think our first big episode about the kids, I mean, they're always present. They're there and, in, in, you know, they're visiting uh, Olivia in the early part of the season and Meadow's learning the drive. And... and Meadow and Hunter make the ugliest French toast I've ever seen in my life. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck they're doing. <laughs> Spilling shit everywhere. Good Lord. You know, oh, they've made a disaster of that kitchen. They, they could care less. But that that's actually the episode. I think it's Toodle Fucking Ooh where she trashes... Her mother, her Lily, grandma's house. house. That's our first like big episode, kind of centered around some of the domestic things going on. And Meadow understands her power. She comes into a, as graduations can do, a, a, as much maturity as can be expected of an eighteen-year-old girl in these circumstances as the season goes on. But the Meadow we see in that episode, and then the Meadow we see in Funhouse, there's there's some some learning has happened. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. There's there's been some. Uh, some growing up in that house. And in between, there's a critical moment for me is in Happy Wanderer. Sure. Yeah. Um, when he gives her the car. Yeah. And that, uh, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Uh, it's a big moment for Meadow. Uh, it's a low-key, like, kind of big season for Meadow, I think, actually. 
um, because she hits these particular moments, but they're pretty important. Yeah. I would say AJ had a bigger season one of the two kids. I mean, Meadow had her moments. on They both have their moments. And AJ had his moments in season two, but when I think of the kids in season two, I think of Meadow. I think of the graduation. I think of Davy Scatino's car. Uh, Davis, oh, yeah, Eric, Eric, yeah, Eric's car, yeah. <laughs> Eric's Jeep, and I think of Tootle Fucking Moo and and whatnot. Season one was very much about like what does AJ know, and he's on he's on the cusp of discovery. And season two for me is about Meadow leaving the nest soon. She's going to go off to. She's a very bright young lady. She's going off to college. Did you know this is Tony and Carmela's last chance to really be a, a parent to this person? And yeah. what is she leaving this house with? What is she going into the world with? Right. And is she going off to Berkeley and firmly separating herself from her family and what it means to be a part of this family? Or is she accepting where she comes from and understanding, nope, my dad is this mob boss, this is how he provides for us, and I'm to some degree culpable and okay with it. Mm. You know. And by the end of the season, her so-called graduation is kind of the fusing of all those elements of saying, listen, I am who I am. I am not ashamed of it. I understand what my father's involved with, and um, you know I, I can take the knowledge forward and do with it what I please. Uh, you know, one of her shining moments this season is that she goes back to Livia's house and cleans it personally, uh, a job that should really be left to professional cleaners. She presumably does alone, even though she, on the surface, seems like she doesn't care or that she will not do that kind of a thing. Privately, she takes care of business, and Tony gets to witness that, and that's a. You know, an important growth moment mm. for us. She is mortified to be given her friend's Jeep. And the lesson that Tony seems to be teaching, at least what he reveals in therapy, is that um, he doesn't want her to forget where she comes from. Because, again, she's this brilliant, talented young girl that would have done well in any family. But she's born unto the Sopranos. Mm. You know, and, and some part of Tony resents that as much as he celebrates it. Uh, and he wants her to have the car almost like an albatross around her neck to say, Don't you fucking forget. Don't mm. you forget what made you. You know, and by the time we get to her graduation at the end of the season, yeah, I think those elements have fused. She is embarrassed to see her father being arrested by the FBI, but running upstairs is not out of mortification, right? She wants to escape that moment, but she doesn't want to escape the family. I think there's some good growth here. Well said. I, I'm very proud of the direction she takes it in. She, she takes it all in stride, which is... Different, I think, than AJ takes it, but we have more on that uh, coming as the show goes on. And, you know, Meadow, it would have been very easy after that episode with Eric's Jeep and the ass-chewing Tony delivers her to just say, well, uh, you're in a shitty situation and, and just curl up into a ball and, and let that break you in a sense. But she doesn't. She's able to kind of like, she's hurt and upset in the moment, but she, she takes it to a really mature place and, and I'm proud of her. Yes, this life will always be a weight around her, and yes, she's always going to kind of be around, but you get the sense that, like, you know, Meadow's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, going back to what you just said about Meadow versus AJ, you know, I, I think their different reactions has a lot to do with what it means for them to be a part of this family. Mm-hmm. Meadow is under no obligation to join the Capital F family. Yeah. I don't think AJ knows, now that he knows what his family does, what does that mean for him? And it's pretty clear that Tony doesn't want him a part of it, but is it because he's not capable? Or is it because Tony wants something different from him? I think regardless of what Tony actually thinks, AJ may feel the not capable based on some pretty rough 
instances in this season. So Meadow doesn't have that pressure. Mm. Meadow just has to be a good student, a kick-ass young lady, and she's going to be fine whether she separates or not. Uh, AJ has a lot of pressure, and whether he understands it fully or not, he feels it. He feels that pressure. Yeah. So that's another really good point. I think that what both kids are going through, and certainly how Tony and, and Carmela view it, is much more intense in this season. There's big moments in last season. I mean, college is college. It's yep. just an unbelievable standalone piece of work. Yeah. In this season, though, there's a couple of things that suggest to me that the kids are getting a bit more unpredictable, or at yep. least in terms of what they're dealing with. AJ just, like, fucking blowing some... Chuman at his communion, just like smoking a J, <laughs> stealing a car, and, and stealing know, a car. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and even Meadow, I again would look at it a little bit out of her character or her usual day to day to be doing a party where there's drugs at her grandmother's house, um, acting out a bit. And Meadow's going off to college, so a lot of it gets ramped up, including in an episode where Tony is wondering, "Am I going away? I mm. want to spend some more time with AJ." Um, he reflects in that very moment, as Lily was just mentioning, I'm not worried about Meadow. Mm. Meadow's got her resources going out in the world. Um, so he wanted to spend more time with AJ to, quote, toughen him up. Uh, so yeah, I think it makes for a lot of dynamic scenes that every, that the temperature is being raised on these storylines with both Meadow and AJ. Yeah. And some very funny scenes. AJ being grilled in the kitchen about his existentialism, fucking internet, uh, <laughs> is uh, is classic Sopranos dark comedy. You know, it's it's great stuff. And Math that's the most boring. <laughs> you're the choice of suffering. You want to start now? Him mispronouncing Nietzsche as niche. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, he's not a bright kid, but he uh, maybe he's uh, salvageable. Maybe not. But to me, this season was very much about Meadow flying away as the ducks did and leaving the nest and. Yeah, I think the the kids also grew big as actors this season. I think there was a noticeable... They're in the best acting school on the planet. Yeah. You know, from season one, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to work with James Gandolfini and Edie Falco regularly. Uh, there's no way you don't pick up at least some, some good habits on set and some little tricks of the trade. And from what I understand, James Gandolfini was the most friendly, supportive people to, in particular, the young people on the cast. So... Good for them, and I noticed uh, there was definitely a step up in, in acting game. They went from, like, kid actors to, oh, these, these, are, these are performers now. These are people who are, you know, growing into the characters as their lives get more complex. Mm. It's good stuff. It was fascinating to watch. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about uh, our new addition on the mob front, Furio Junta from Italy, our new brutal enforcer, Tony's uh, guy to you send to fuck people up. Uh, he had one of the best entrances into the series possible, and um, what a journey Chris had this season too. Getting shot, acting—he's—he's he's kind of in an interesting place where he was—he's uh, still kind of the young up and comer, the hothead, the guy who doesn't always think everything through. But he was also playing mentor to uh, Matt Bevilacqua and Sean Gismonti, and uh, to tragic effect. <laughs> so, some of the mob goings on, some interesting things going on. Tony restructuring the family, taking over, firmly solidifying as boss. Junior subsistence, Livia's persona non grata. Any fun thoughts or, or discussion to be had about uh, the state of the family family? So in terms of the uh, promotions and, and kind of folks moving around, um, it was pretty vital to the narrative that Pussy not receive any kind of promotion or commendation for his work. I mean, the guy was 
if you believe his story, he was just gone for a year because he was in a love affair with a Puerto Rican acupuncturist. I mean, yeah. this is, you know, uh, that should be enough to get him passed over the promotion, but he still does still take it personally. Polly and Silvio being moved up is not surprising, though I, is that typical of a mob structure to have a two underboss situation? That seems a little different, doesn't it? Yeah, I think Silvio is sort of like, maybe like, the way I see it, and again, I have nothing really concrete to go off of, but the way I see it is, I, I consider Silvio more of like a consigliere type, like an advisor. And but he does stuff. Yeah, and Paulie to be more of sort of a, you know, underboss or a top capo, okay. you know, most trusted captain kind of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, listen, it, it must be a thing if they did it. It just seemed unusual to me. Also, just like, how much more of an outsider can you make pussy? It's like, it's clearly those three guys are all equivalent, yeah. right? And you you move up two and not the third, Well, right? it's about Tony in, in, insulating himself and trying to be smart. Yeah, which he doesn't do well. Early in the season, he makes a joke and he says, you know, to run a family these days, you got to operate it from a bunker, basically. But then he spends the whole season very energetically going out there and doing the shit he's not supposed to be doing. Well, and it gets personal. I mean, he goes and murders somebody by hand. And right, twice almost... in this season. Yeah, right. and it almost ends up getting him caught. It's the eyeball witness, that whole thing. Yeah. A flag-saluting uh, motherfucker. Yeah, he is not <laughs> uh, not performing in the way that, that Mink would like him to be, yeah. right? To, to keep out of, you know, and, and he gets you know gets busted for it. So, um, yeah, restructuring was interesting. We, we all love seeing Chris get his pin, you know, yeah. finally. Or, you know, at least be uh, recommended for it. Yeah, Furio is like kind of a necessary addition because as everyone's moving up, you need just more people at the enforcement level. Yeah. And he's just so cool. Yeah. Like, he's really the thing we get from Commendatory. Yes. It's just like, what'd you come back from Italy with? This guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah, his, yeah. his entrance on the American front, particularly the scene where Tony's waiting for him outside the massage parlor, yeah. is a moment on the show. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a big one. He's just a wrecking ball. The way that I think about the business front and the mob family that's interesting is I, w I remember, Chris, this was one of the things that we wanted to talk about. I was reflecting on it. It seems to me that there's a lot of evidence that in this season, the mob work, though it has complications, generally I would say business is good. Yeah. Business is booming. The season starts and ends with two these montage pieces that all suggest one thing. Business as usual. Yeah. Money's pumping in. We're doing it. The complications are mostly personal. Yes. Are mostly about denial, are mostly something being complicated by well, an error in judgment. Right. Um, and part of what grinds Richie's gears so much is that he says, you know, this country's going through boom times, there's more garbage than there ever was. There's a lot of implications throughout the season that things are good, and Richie's not getting as big a piece of it as he wants, and so that kind of adds to the resentment he, he builds towards as the series goes on. Right. Um, so what complicates the show for me in this season is not so much that even there are like serious threats to business, but rather that in sustaining his business and his life, Tony, among other things, kills his best friend. Yeah. And now has to live with it. Mm -hmm. um, and of course this case, which is still ill-defined, but whatever got him the first pinch where he got arrested at the end of Funhouse is still hanging over our heads. Yeah. Someone want to bring up briefly, and I have a feeling we're going to talk about this more in detail in a few minutes, but what really gets me about the mob stuff this season 
is while it is business as usual and things are good, I think we get a richer sense of just how deep the rot goes this season. Mm. We see a lot of despicable behavior in season one, murders and the takeover of the motel is really shitty, but there's also a lot more situations in season one where like the people who... A lot of the characters kind of made their own bed and gotten, like, you know, Titleman made a deal with the devil and his motel got taken over. Right. There's a lot of that. And we get a weird kind of mirror situation of that with the Scatino bust out. One could argue Davy Scatino gets himself into his own jam. But we're seeing a lot more in season two how this ripples out to people who don't get in bed with the mob and how it affects communities and... You know, that montage at the end of the season uh, where you're just seeing why the Sopranos are able to live this beautiful, lavish lifestyle and throw this beautiful party with all these beautiful people and food right. and drinks and this house on the hill. And it's built on these immigrants getting ripped off from this yeah, awful, sim, gross calling card scheme. Uh, the old people with wibistics. the stocks. Wibistics. Yeah. Uh, a hollowed out stock office at the end is a haunting Yeah, we're, we're reminded, I think, more than we are in season one, that the Capital F family are, they're predatory, right? And yeah. the people that they are preying on, it would kind of be fine if they were just preying on each other and be like, ah, mobsters doing it to other mobsters, but it's, they're preying on us. Right. Yeah. They're preying on average Joe American, you mm-hmm. know, and actually particularly vulnerable average Joe Americans, right? Yeah. Even, you know, Davies is kind of a gross character because of his gambling addiction, but he's also, I mean, that's a, that, that is a, he has a condition. Right. You know, Tony knows it and exploits it and admits it. Right. You know? Right. But we don't feel as bad for the HMO guy who got into gambling debt in season one because it's just like, well, this this dumb asshole got involved in the mob, got his leg broke, right. and now has to work something out with Tony. Yeah. We see how this affects Davy's wife. Yeah, and his son. Yeah. His brother-in-law, his son, his whole community. We get a sense that Davy's sporting good. We see the scenes at the school. Davy's like well-liked among the people. Like his sporting goods store is a community staple. It's a local-run business. And it's liquidated. By yep. the end, Tony cleaned through the place like termites. This is a place that served the community. And again, no spoilers, but there are a lot of explorations going forward in The Sopranos about the corporatization and big business of America. And I think it's great to see in these early seasons how these guys prey on the mom and pop places too. It's not like these places, this is, this is a rot. This is a cancer. And it's something that eats away at society like termites, as Scatino says. Yeah. This is why Janice is so despicable. And this will all connect, right? Hmm. We're along for the ride with the capital F Sopranos family, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is what they're about. We're not going to say, ugh, Tony. We're rooting for him, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we're rooting for the Sopranos family, we can even not hate Agent Harris and the FBI group because they're just doing their job, right? It's their job to stop this. So, you know, even though Skip is annoying and, and throws a wrench, like, they're doing their job. Janice is just messing it up for her own personal gain. <laughs> We've already decided to root for Tony, and she comes in and just messes it all up. And we see right through it. And it's stoppable, and that's really hard to watch. And therefore, Janice is the true villain of The Sopranos. <laughs> you know, it's just like as a viewer, she's the, you know, the chaos character who's she's, throwing wrenches yeah. in everything. Yeah. She's yeah. the most generous at spreading misery. Yeah. yeah. 
We, we expect the FBI to mess this all up. That's why the Sopranos exist. But Janice doesn't need to get involved with this. Get out of here, Janice. Yeah. You know? Damn it, Janice. That's why I hear Janice and I just go, ugh. And Ada Totoro is so, so, so good at doing that. Yeah, she rolls. She's so good at it. Because like some... even she comes on screen and I'm just, ugh. <laughs> like some Vishnu come lately. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well said. Speaking of well said, how about we do a top three? I got another top three for you, baby. Top oh, yeah! Three. Bow, 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 bow. Rock and roll poison. Bow. <laughs> <laughs> this one's going to be favorite lines. Favorite lines. Favorite things said. Yeah. Uh, I believe... Uh, do you want to start us off, Lil? I've only got one. Go for it. I don't have much memory for scripts and things like that. And Chris already mentioned how much this line means to me on your episode, but... The disc is in there! <laughs> <laughs> of course, referring to episode four, Commendatory. Yep. When they're trying to watch Godfather and Chris is trying to fix the DVD player. I would watch these guys just live their lives. Yeah, Go yeah. to CVS. Go to the, this, the the grocery store. I just, watching them. I would watch a Polly Walnuts reality show. I would. I would do that. I would absolutely do that. Same like picking up his prescriptions and going grocery shopping. Yeah, the, funny the Truman Show with Polly Walnuts. It's just <laughs> watching them navigate that DVD player yeah. and fight uh, is just so charming mm. and so real and I try to say that line as much as possible, and that's it. I'll go. Uh, my top three lines are, are such. Forgive me for this third one because it's less a line and more an exchange that I'm going to recite here. But um, it's in D Girl. I think uh, I think a lot of us might have lines from D Girl. I, I maybe I'm wrong, but uh, <laughs> there's just so much great shit in this line, in, in this episode. Uh, but. Uh, Chris says, you know, that's another thing that sucked about Swingers, the acting. And you know it was good fucking acting. Hanks, Private Ryan. <laughs> and uh, then he says, well, it's not really, Favros, it's not really fair to compare the two. One's about uh, soldiers dying in World War II, the other's about guys just trying to get laid. And Chris's response is, yeah, well, you made the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Not only is it just funny in and of itself, the acting there is really funny because Chris is coked up, but... It's just, like, for John Favreau to sign off on that, he has to have a sense of humor about not only himself, but his own work. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I, I love that. I love John Favreau. He's become a beloved uh, member of pop culture America, and it's just great to see him in this setting with, with uh, Chris Moltisanti. And that scene as well, uh, my honorable mention, I guess, I don't have an honorable mention for every category, but I had to add an addendum to this, Chris's revelation the roof is soft tar. <laughs> uh, that whole thing. Uh, I could I could put that whole scene in my favorite lines. My second is I'm not even gonna explain it because I did it in the episode. I'm just gonna say the line and it's gonna stand. Veal Parmesan sandwich. Fuck you. That's it. That's it. It's all that needs to be said. Great line. And then uh, you know those are kind of two funnier lines, lines I laugh at or that make me smile. And this one sends chills up my spine every time, so I had to put it as my number one. AJ goes to see Livia in um, uh, "Do Not Resuscitate," I believe. Oh no, this is actually probably D Girl because he's. This is when he's wrestling with existentialism. He goes to see yes. Livia, and uh, she says to him, "Why does everything have to have a purpose? 
The world is a jungle. She sits up in bed after laying there miserable. This causes her to sit up. The world is a jungle. If you want my advice, Anthony, don't expect happiness. You won't get it. People let you down. And I'm not going to name any names, but in the end, you die in your own arms. It's all a big nothing. What makes you think you're so special? First thanks. of all... Thanks, Grandma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she says that to a kid, but we talk a lot in, on, on this show about the seed of this family being Livia. And that's... Those are the, you, you can judge a tree by the fruit it bears. Yep. And that's the fruit of this tree. Nihilism, misery, death, disappointment. Just, it's all a big nothing. Yep. And that's the germ, that's the seed that created all of this. Yeah, that's the seed that grew this garden. Yeah. Yep. And uh, there it is. And it just makes me sad and ill to think about Absolutely. that moment. And it's so well written, too. It's great. Yeah. Uh, mine are all a little bit more lighthearted, I have to say, <laughs> uh, than that one. Uh, so my first one is, To the victim belongs the spoils. <laughs> Which, of course, comes from our f the first appearance of Bobby Bacala, Bobby Bocellieri, in um, episode two, Do Not Resuscitate. Yep. Um, so, same episode, actually. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. That was from a different episode. But, yes, uh, first appearance of Bacala. It's a great scene, just yeah. in general, and just having that as the punctuation on it is so fun and funny. And he's already so enjoyable already. Um, so, just, I, I, it's, a, it's a line I think about a lot. Uh, second, I'm going to have to reference the executive game, of course, in The Happy Wanderer, Silvio Dante. I'm losing my fucking balls here! <laughs> Something I say often as well. Uh, and then finally... Do you say it just because, or are you like in situations where you're gambling and losing? I will, I, you know what, I will actually go out of my way to create situations in which I can use that line on purpose. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, from, uh, from Where to Eternity, I have Christopher sitting up in his hospital bed. The Emerald Piper, that's our hell. Mm. It's an Irish bar where it's St. Patrick's Day every day forever. And the line stands out for me because I think for many people that's like a funny line, mm -hmm. like it's a silly line, but he he's totally serious and it may in fact be real. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, it, it speaks to like the supernatural weirdness of that episode. And also I think for him it was a real moment. Mm. Uh, it's just really cool. Very well. Uh, okay, honorable mention line is every line that Polly says in the scene with the psychic <laughs> in From Where to Eternity. Who the fuck are you talking to? Yeah. That whole thing. Yep. Um, all right, so my three top, I guess they're like kind of thinky, but uh, all right. Um, number three is from Happy Wanderer. Tony says, I got the world by the balls and I can't stop feeling like I'm a fucking loser. That dichotomy and the doubleness of his nature and mm -hmm. what he goes through in that episode is powerful to me. Number two, from Night in White Satin Armor. You are putting me in a position where I'm feeling sorry for a whore who fucks you. And what's even stranger, for a second, I believed you. Yeah. So that line's from Carmela, also really getting at a complexity and a power to what she's feeling. Yeah. Um, and the tag on it, for a second, I believed you, is so brutal. And the, la the number one line is from Funhouse. Rage, Anthony, is a big, flaming self-distraction from feelings that are even more frightening. Mm. That's a Dr. Melfi quote. Mm. Tony doesn't listen to her. Um, but <laughs> it's nonetheless very important. So, And I found it a striking line. So nice. Yeah. 
Ah, Sopranos podcast fans, thank you so much for joining us for part one of our season two retrospective. Please join us again in two weeks for part two. We're going to go over our top three characters in season two, top three moments, top three episodes. We're going to talk about Livia, Junior, Dr. Melfi, Carmela's journey, and a lot more fun and laughter coming your way on the Sopranos podcast. Thank you all so much. We'll see you in two weeks for the season two retrospective part two.